Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at the Long Now Foundation. Our foundation gets its name from an essay by Brian Eno, one of our founding board members. In that piece, Brian describes a sense of now that expands thousands of years into the future and thousands of years into the past to create a holistic sense of temporal place. But that essay isn't just called The Long Now, it's called The Long Now and The Big Here. With the idea being that in order to have a better society, we need to live in both a longer now as well as a bigger here. Not just considering our family or our country, but the whole world, because the whole world is our here. This talk focuses on that concept, looking at challenges like migration and refugees, as well as the potential for a much brighter, more interconnected future that brings people together all in the big here. Our speaker tonight, Dr. Parag Khanna, is a true citizen of the world and has thought deeply about geography and how it will affect our future. His latest book, Move, The Forces Uprooting Us, takes us on a journey from the dawn of human history with our migrations out of Africa into the present moment of migration driven by conflict, climate, economics, and political strife. Along the way, we'll be weaving in excerpts from a previous talk at Long Now, a conversation on the most pressing long-term problems around the refugee crisis and the complexities of human mobility. Before we explore the uncharted territories of what Parag calls Civilization 3.0, a small ask of our listeners. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience, and so anytime you rate the podcast, leave a review, or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. With that in mind, let's hear from Parag Khanna about our interconnected and mobile future. Thank you so much, Xander. It is so great to be here, finally. <laughs> what you are looking at is the beginning of globalization. It doesn't look like much, but we didn't have a lot of built-up infrastructure 100,000 years ago. This photo was taken eight years ago by Paul Solopek. And he calls this place Milestone Zero. It's a point in the Rift Valley of Ethiopia where he and his sponsors and supporters and the scientists of National Geographic believe is effectively the original point from which mankind began to migrate out of the great African continent and colonize the world. And it is the beginning of what is known as his Out of Eden Walk project. Our ancestors didn't quite know where they were going, but walk they did. And so began not only our species colonization of the continents, but globalization itself. He's also the embodiment of mankind's once and future nomadism. We got to where we are due to our nomadic origins. And our genetic intermingling over these preceding millennia accounts for the surprisingly common ancestry that all of us share. I believe that a large-scale resettlement of the world population is increasingly necessary to compensate for the dangerous misalignment in our foundational geographies. There are four layers of geography that underpin human civilization. And today, they are badly out of sync. The first is natural geography. This is the geography, location, and distribution of our resources. On maps such as this, brown represents the deserts, blue represents the oceans, green represents the forests, and so forth. But this layer of geography is very much in flux due to the acceleration of climate change. Industrial agriculture and deforestation are reducing the volume and the expanse of the green. Drought and desertification are expanding the brown. Greenhouse gas emissions are turning our air black, drying up our rivers and polluting our oceans. As temperatures rise, our glaciers melt. Future maps will have less white over the Andes, the Rockies, the Alps, the Himalayas, 
And of course, the polar ice caps as well. And as sea levels rise, they encroach upon and inundate our coastlines. So future maps will therefore also have more blue. The second layer is the political geography of states and borders. This is the most arbitrary of our cartographic lenses. In 1945, the United Nations had only 51 members. Today, it has nearly 200 members. That's the result of post-World War II decolonization, after which more than 100 new countries were born, and of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. There have never been as many sovereign states, in fact, as we have today. The third layer of geography is the functional infrastructure that we have built. These are the intentional investments that we have been making to connect us to each other. These lines represent the highways and the railways, the electricity grids and the oil and gas pipelines, the seaports and airports, the fiber optic internet cables that have blanketed much of the world. All of our supply chains, much of the global economy, and quite frankly, our civilization as we know it, has come to depend on this connectivity. And here's the map that you see least of all. This is the map of us. This is our human geography. It's our distribution across the planet. Every one of us, 8 billion pixels. And of course, where we are is no accident. After millennia of nomadism, the retreat of the Ice Age more than 10,000 years ago enabled humankind to settle into more sedentary agricultural and pastoral rhythms. We did so primarily where the climate was amenable, the so-called climate niche, with much of the world population clustering between 20 and 30 degrees north latitude. And within those latitudes, we planted roots as close as possible to rivers and estuaries. Environmental factors such as droughts and floods, political phenomena such as wars and genocides, and technological advancements such as air conditioning and the internet have all played a role in shaping our human geography. The grand story of our geographic evolution can't be told through only one cartographic lens. Rather, we can only fully appreciate the chain reactions among and the misalignments between these layers of geography by superimposing them on top of each other, generating an image as messy and as complex as it is accurate and revealing. And what such a layering unveils to us is the misalignment among the geography of resources, borders, economics, and people. Resources are abundant where people are few, and resources are scarce where populations are dense. Billions of people are trapped behind borders in increasingly uninhabitable places while increasingly livable geographies are actually becoming depopulated. Correcting the imbalances among and steering our system towards a more dynamic equilibrium should become our common civilizational mission. It's no longer an overstatement to say that our fundamental survival depends on rectifying these misalignments. That's because we can no longer take global population growth for granted. Instead, the human population will soon taper, plateau, and eventually decline much sooner than we thought it would. Today's youth, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, together represent 60% of the human population. But as our children, defer from having children, or have fewer children, or none at all, each generational cohort is getting smaller and smaller. And that means that the present generation that dominates the world today is also going to dominate the future. 
To put it in sci-fi terms, the present is the future. So now we've established our nomadic origins, our geographic misalignments, and our demographic plateau. We may reach nine billion people on a planet where most people live in uninhabitable places. So where do we go from here? To say that humanity is at a crossroads would be something of an understatement. The scenarios that we can conjure up range from mass extinction to a harmonious relationship with nature. In Move, I develop four scenarios for the future. And for the purposes of this book, I constructed these scenarios along the axes of sustainability and migration. We'll start with the two low sustainability scenarios. The new Middle Ages harkens back to the Eurasian world of a thousand years ago. It was a fragmented world of local survivalism and limited trade, a world of moats and tactical alliances. To map it onto the present, it suggests a scenario in which technological innovation to forestall climate change and technology transfer to promote sustainability elsewhere are totally and utterly insufficient. Furthermore, migration to livable geographies is strictly limited. The other low sustainability scenario is called barbarians at the gate. The Romans used this expression in a very literal sense as they fortified their settlements in the early centuries AD before their collapse. Here we also bring in the geopolitical dimension of water wars and land grabs, but also mass migrations as refugees overwhelm borders. It's a similarly chaotic scenario, but a more globalized one due to international conflict and political or climate refugee flows. Now we have the somewhat more positive scenarios. Regional fortresses is in many ways a continuation of the present. It's a world of regional strongholds like North America, Europe, Russia, Japan, that primarily invest in their own sustainability and self-sufficiency of agriculture, energy, and industry. They rein in supply chains through nearshoring. They engage in some degree of technology transfer to support developing regions towards similar ends. But they continue to ward off large-scale migration, even violently if needed. Less globalization may make them feel more secure, but it doesn't make them wealthier, given their aging demographics and their smaller markets. The fourth and final scenario is called Northern Lights. It's the most optimistic, ambitious, and progressive scenario. But what would it take to get there? The pathway to Northern Lights calls for a resettled human population, mostly around geographies of the Northern Hemisphere. But it also suggests a fluid circulation of people, either seasonally or to cope with various kinds of unpredictability, whether political or ecological. In this scenario, we also pre-design our habitats to be more circular in the usage and recycling of water, production of energy through renewable resources and other means. Today, Elements of all four of these scenarios are visible, either within certain regions and, of course, at the global scale, to a greater or lesser degree. And if constructed properly, the future will, in fact, embody all of these scenarios. The only question is where and to what extent. I call my approach to realigning our geographies programmable geography. Many are familiar with how evolved computational spatial science has become. Our usage of sensors on land and sea and space has allowed us to create not only real-time, data-rich imagery of the state of the planet's ecosystems, but also to produce sophisticated models and use machine learning to adapt our forecasts as new data sets are integrated. We can not only bring our four layers of geography together, but we can map out how these variables interact with and shape each other. 
And these tools have wide-ranging applications. We can visualize not only the present distribution of the world population to the level where each of us is a pixel, and a moving pixel at that, but also, of course, the shifts in the climate niche of optimal human habitation, so that we can predetermine the geographies where our species can continue to thrive. The task of programmable geography, therefore, becomes to determine on an ongoing and unfolding basis what geographies are suitable for human life at any given time and to allow people to safely and productively relocate there. And in doing so, we're not merely reacting to climate change and other disruptions, but we are pre-designing the pathway towards a new model that I call Civilization 3.0. Here, I'm trying to articulate a paradigm appropriate to today's complex world. Civilization 1.0 was when we were nomadic and agricultural. In Civilization 2.0, we became sedentary and industrial. In Civilization 3.0, I propose that we become more mobile and more sustainable. We can be nomadic as needed and self-sufficient wherever we are. The simple fact is that the best adaptation mechanism and the one that we are best at and have honed for thousands of years is to move. And so here it is that you see the misalignment of our geographies hit the hardest. Political geography trumps the logic of bringing together natural geography and human geography. Borders impede us from exercising our basic fight or flight instinct. People are forced to stay and die when they could just as easily move and survive. We can't delay this discussion or agenda any longer. Because even if mitigation efforts were to succeed, our climate is not going to return to what it was. Our global ecology is a complex system. Even keeping temperatures below a two degrees Celsius rise doesn't mean that agriculture automatically or magically regenerates where droughts have reigned or that aquifers are replenished where water tables have been decimated. Our future climate and the microclimates that define where we live won't snap back to what they were in 1800, 1900, or 2000. It follows the laws of chaos, and it will evolve in new directions. One thing is for certain, the climate will not adapt to us. We will have to adapt to it. Yet we know we can do it. The past several centuries have all been eras of mass migrations. Even the 19th century, which historians refer to as the age of nationalism, actually marked the onset of mass migrations into the tens and almost the hundreds of millions of people. For example, in the 19th century, just between Europe and America, 60 million Europeans migrated across the Atlantic due to famine and economic hardship. The first half of the 20th century alone witnessed a similar number of migrants, but more due to political causes, such as ethnic expulsions from Europe and the partition of the Indian subcontinent. In the latter half of the 20th century, an even larger number of migrants surfaced in their new homes. This was due to post-colonial populations coming to Europe, but a far larger number were the 60 million Latinos and Asians who came to America after the 1965 Immigration Act. And now, in the 21st century, climate migrants, they span every continent. Two things we have to remember are, First, migration has risen and will continue to, from the tens of millions to the hundreds of millions, and in this century, certainly into the billions. The decimal place keeps shifting to the right. Second, we have a demonstrated ability to peacefully absorb 
large-scale migration. We've been doing it steadily and doing it peacefully for centuries. The most successful societies in the world today, America, Canada, Britain, Australia, Germany, are all places that have become mass migration societies despite the periodic backlash that takes place. But the directions of migration in the future won't necessarily be the same as those of the past. In January 2020, we saw the data from global migration and travel for the year 2019. As it happens, we reached a high point in all of history in the cross-border movement of people. More than 1 billion people legally crossed borders in the year 2019. And at that time, 275 million people, another high point, were classified as migrants, people living outside of their country of origin. Then it all stopped. It even reset. Millions of people returned home. Europeans also cooled significantly on migration, given their domestic political backlash. And now we have severe pandemic-related restrictions. We're witnessing a return to an overlap of geography and nationality. So today's world effectively resembles the regional fortresses scenario. But here's the irony, which is that even significant intra-regional migration isn't nearly enough to compensate for the labor shortages and the aging populations that afflict the Northern Hemisphere. The acute demographic demise of the Northern Hemisphere would be even more profound and pronounced than it already is were it not for significant inward migration. And the indigenous populations would shrink and will shrink even faster in the decade ahead due to accelerating mortality of the baby boomer generation. And of course, these regional migration patterns took place in a pre-climate change scenario. The world's climate niche is shifting northward with some pockets of potential livability in other regions, but mostly red zones that are expanding across the heavily populated geographies of the world, such as South America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and even China. If we lived in a borderless world, we'd expect to see population shift from coastal and urban and tropical to inland and northern and more dispersed. The geographies that I refer to as climate oases would become more heavily populated. Today, some of these areas have populations of zero or near zero. But what about in 2030, 2040, or 2050? Could we play geography czar and instantly correct our misalignments through mass resettlement of billions of people? Not practically. And of course, there are valid objections. The most significant of which is the tragedy of the commons. So the mass migrations I'm calling for would surely mean the devastation of the remaining suitable habitats that we would suddenly overwhelm. Then, of course, there are political and cultural concerns. As we move, we bring instability with us. And of course, even today's so-called climate oases aren't necessarily paradise. Heat waves and forest fires are striking Alaska, Greenland, and Siberia. And of course, in all such places that we call climate oases, right now there's very, very little infrastructure. Two lessons emerge from this reasoning and the objections to it. The first is that we're not talking about one-way tickets and one-way movement. We're talking about mobility. There are few geographies that are going to be permanently stable Shangri-Las, either politically or environmentally. By definition, there isn't an end state to nomadism, even if there are new seasonal patterns. The second is that if we move and as we move, we have to do so sustainably, which is the essence of the Civilization 3.0 model. 
So what are the tenets or principles that we should follow in pursuit of Civilization 3.0? Let me spell out the moral, the technological, and the demographic exigencies. Morally, my position is what I call cosmopolitan utilitarianism. It is cosmopolitan in that it holds all people equal. And it's utilitarian in that it strives for maximizing collective welfare. We don't live in a world where migration is as fundamental a right as freedom of speech or due process, but we should, since migration is by far the best way to ensure that people actually can attain these rights, among many other benefits. Now let's talk about the suite of technologies that make Civilization 3.0 possible. The first is what I call mobile real estate. Many millennials and Gen Z are opting for mobile homes instead. They're cheaper, you can avoid environmental hazards, and you can just drive to where the work is. Our survival instinct is kicking in. In addition to mobile real estate, we're also advancing in the area of what Google's Astro Teller calls mobile infrastructure, even movable cities. First, there are settled communities with a very light footprint. We're investing in the technologies to nourish ourselves without destabilizing the environment. The Dutch, for example, have a national circular strategy and towns that collect rainwater and do wastewater treatment and recycling. They have solar power and hydro and aquaponic agriculture. Okay, small and mobile villages. That sounds good for millions of people. What about for hundreds of millions of people? What about places like Cairo? Cairo faces insufficient Nile River water, while Alexandria faces a rising Mediterranean Sea. The people of Alexandria and Cairo need desalination, and they need more efficient crop irrigation. But beware of spending billions of dollars on irrigation to sustain agriculture in places where the water supply is at risk and the delicate range of air temperature that's right for growing food. Ultimately, many people in Egypt will have to relocate. Skyscrapers could well become the stranded assets and detritus of our present civilization, like the pyramids of ancient Egypt. Or they may become air-conditioned shelters, part of an archipelago of mixed-use facilities, all within a domed city, which is exactly what's being planned for parts of Dubai. If we stay where we are, we are at best a survival society. Instead, we should move and we should build anew. Some models for how we could establish sustainable and even mobile settlements for hundreds of millions of people are already out there. This is Zatar refugee camp in Jordan. What began as a temporary tent village for Iraqi refugees has become one of Jordan's largest cities. It has a permanent population of 100,000 people. There's bicycle and car sharing. There's Wi-Fi delivered through mesh networks. There's 3D printing and additive manufacturing facilities and stations. There are even career development and job training sites and placement centers. Or there's the model of pop-up cities represented by India's Kumela Festival, which architect Rahul Merotra calls an ephemeral megacity made of bamboo, plastics, light metals, and fabrics that are easily assembled and disassembled for millions of people at a time. There are plans to build entire sporting arenas for future World Cup soccer tournaments in ways that will allow them to be dismantled and relocated rather than sitting empty for decades. For the most part, building for Civilization 3.0 should be an exercise in adaptive architecture and mobile real estate. It's an opportunity to embrace what John C. Lee Brown calls for us to be homo faber, man who makes, and to train ourselves to that end. And then, of course, there's the digital technologies related to identity, citizenship, 
and residency. For better or worse, your financial records, your travel history and itinerary, your criminal records, your professional credentials are all known. And in exchange for having them accessed responsibly as needed, we could attain a far higher efficiency in international mobility. And who needs this mobility the most? Youth. When you're talking about the future, you have to focus on today's youth. 50% of the world population is under the age of 30. 90% of them are in developing countries. We are not an endless swarm of people, more like a finite swirl. We shouldn't devote energy to erecting walls or capsizing the boats and vessels of migrants. Instead, we should embrace and welcome them in the name of preserving those who are left in our species. Solidarity can emerge without the cost of people's identity. The study of geography and all of its layers together bundles the signals of our civilization and its interactions with the planet. It channels messages from the ground beneath our feet, but also from the sky above, and it feeds those signals back to us. And it's telling us something. It's telling us that we need to evolve, that we need to evolve from sovereignty to stewardship and from authority to responsibility, that administration of geography carries obligations to maintain and to conserve it. Our challenge boils down to this. There are 8 billion of us and 150 million square kilometers of terrain. How should we distribute ourselves to maximize our collective survival? We are humans, humans in search of the right combination of latitude, altitude, and attitude. We can be nomadic again. We can move people to resources and technologies to people. We're in a terrible situation that's getting worse, but we're developing the tools to build a better future. Recall that Paul Salopek is in China right now and heading towards Russia. About 30,000 years ago, Eastern Eurasia was the juncture of genetic collisions that have made us the mongrel species that we are today. Eurasia is home to two-thirds of the world population. About 3.5 billion people belong to the Indo-Eurasian language group. What if, as we recirculate in search of the right latitude, altitude, and attitude, we enjoy another round of ethnic intermingling that enriches our gene pool, producing a new civilizational energy. That civilization 3.0, diverse, sustainable, and resilient, is within reach if we embrace mobility. Mobility is not only our path to survival, but to move is to rediscover what it means to be human. Thank you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, this movable infrastructure idea. Actually, Stuart and I both are houseboat people. Um, <laughs> I grew up on houseboats and he still lives on one. There you and go, that's movable. It, it is movable, <laughs> but the irony is also that one of the things that we found in houseboats is that once people get their slip, they don't ever, they will fight you to the death if they have to move their boat, which is always to me seems interesting. So there's, there always seems to be this kind of nimbyism that's, that's been against the mobility. Um, it sounds like there's a generational shift here, but I wonder if you talk a little bit more about various types of movable infrastructure. So there's a couple of things there, the nimbyism and then the movable infrastructure. In terms of the nimbyism, it's because you believe that you are at the end of the rainbow, right? That, you know, you have, you are in the promised land and you don't want it to be overcrowded. And obviously you have your like-minded community and that kind of thing. And you don't want to see a, you know, a degradation of your property values due to various factors that may accompany uh, an influx of people and, you know, various inequalities that may emerge and that kind of thing. But with movable infrastructure, it's really about, in a way, chasing or, again, as I say, pre-designing 
in habitats that we know are going to be secure or in a way to be mobile in the instance that, as I mentioned, you need to avoid, you know, freak uh, typhoon storms. Look at Hurricane Ida. It struck the Gulf Coast at Louisiana. It flooded basements in New Jersey. What climate model told us that Hurricane Ida was going to flood basements in New Jersey? There are a lot of people right now with buyer's remorse about the homes that they bought in New Jersey because of a storm in the Gulf. And that's 2021. What about 2031, Xander? Right. So I think we need to think in terms of movable infrastructure. You know, uh, Elon Musk is a great example because he's the world's richest man with $220 billion and lives in a $50,000 boxable flat packed home. And what we're seeing, and this is definitely not just a cottage industry, right? These are mega decacorns or whatever you call them. These companies that are rolling off the assembly lines, these, uh, these, um, you know, 3D printed homes homes that can be put on the back of a truck and moved around that are perfectly comfortable accommodation for families. In stable geographies, uh, you know, there, there are companies that are literally just giant industrial sized printers printing a row of homes in a single day. They're doing a lot of this in Mexico. We're doing it here in the United States. So all of those are examples of mobile infrastructures. And, you know, even if none of us here in California, although of course this is a false statement because we know that, that our geography is at risk here in California. But even if across the rich world, we manage to have stable you know, climate, when you're focused on the overall welfare of 8 billion people, you know, at least 6 billion of whom live in developing countries, at least 4 billion of whom are in climate stressed areas right now, even if everything's fine right here, you need to be thinking about mobile infrastructure for at least half of humanity, but in fact, a lot more than half. The history of coastal civilization so far has been that we, we were more willing to build levees and walls and flood barriers than give up the most expensive real estate on the planet. You think that's just going to be overwhelmed or it's just going to be a generational shift that takes, takes it away? Well, so there's no question that there's a set of forces conspiring to disincentivize young people to simply adopt that mentality, right? And the first is obviously climate change, right? So you don't want to actually own that uh, terrain, that coastal area that's going to be destroyed. Then you're seeing that older people don't necessarily want to pass down that asset, right? I mean, real estate is supposed to be an intergenerational transfer, an appreciating asset. If you buy something that you are going to then pass on to your children and hope that your grandchildren will inherit, that will be worth zero. Potentially, while you're still alive, you're going to have second thoughts about where to buy it. And even if you don't have those scruples, guess what? The insurance industry does. And that's what the headlines from literally last week said. They said, you may not care about your flood risk, but your insurance company does. Flood insurance is going to increase in price 20-fold, 30-fold in just the next few years. So you really do have to care. And then it's young people's preference for debt avoidance, which is a critical part of what's motivated this whole movement towards trailer homes and this kind of thing. So not wanting to. There was a survey that I saw that CNBC or others had, had conducted showing that even among those millennials that have bought homes, which is, of course, fewer as a percentage of the generation than, than Gen X or baby boomers, even amongst those that did buy homes, two thirds have buyer's remorse. For a variety of reasons, because mortgage rates went up, because they underestimated the cost of maintenance and these kinds of things. The demographic question that arises for me from your charts is you have the leveling and then declining of human population, starting in the global north and moving steadily in the global south. That means the, the famous you know, population pyramids with lots of people, young people at the bottom and not very many old people at the top, are going vertical. And you make all the points about how young people are comfortable moving and good at moving and the jobs are somewhere that are not where they live. Old people hate people moving in on them. They hate moving. I like it here or I'm really good at being here and I would be terrible at being anywhere else. And the global north and the global south, the global aging and the global young may have a generational conflict out of this that makes mobility south to north war. And that was one of your scenarios, I know. And it's a period of time 
if prosperity keeps growing, which then leads to the demographic transition of fewer children typically and so on, a good question will be, if people plan to move, do they have large families? Do they, you want to take seven people with you to Canada? or maximum two, or maybe less. And you know, how, are the demo, how is the birth rate reflecting how people feel about the future? So in Russia, people are not so excited about the future, mm -hmm. and they're having fewer and fewer kids. And then in Japan, there's fewer and fewer kids because they've all retired, basically. Yeah. And the more old people you have, the fewer young reproductive people you have. So the demographics are so strong in relation to the things you're talking about with climate, it looks like it's headed toward more conflict rather than more resolution. So uh, uh, how does that play for you? I think this is fascinating. So the potential vectors of conflict that you're describing are both political and generational as well as environmental. Yes. So the environmental one is obvious, right? If we are in the low sustainability scenarios, then there will be conflict over water, food, and other resources, and that will occur in multiple parts of the world. That's just understood, and it has nothing to do with generations per se. Mm -hmm. But maybe we focus on the social uh, lines of inquiry that you're asking that are generational and national. Now, here's some interesting facts. All of the countries where we have seen the political backlash against migration, right? Think about Brexit, think about Trump, think about the far-right parties in Germany, think about our general sort of image of Japan as an insular anti-foreign country. All of these countries are actually relative to their recent past mass migration countries, mm. right? Canada, again, is on an aggressive campaign to increase its population by 1% a year. That's 400,000 people per year. Pound for pound, there isn't a more generous country for migration anywhere than Canada. And of course, they have the space for it, but it's also part of their economic strategy of diversification. You can't have a thriving services economy with the same stock of aging people. Brexit, it's easier to migrate to the United Kingdom right now than it was before Brexit because they've experienced the humiliation and the pain of labor shortages. Right now, there's a shortage of 100,000 truckers. Right. Their excess mortality from not having enough nurses was horrendous in England and in America. So had we had smart migration policy around certain skills, and for those who don't know, it is really important to emphasize, American embassies and consulates were open all over the world during the pandemic. Do you know what they were doing? They were begging people to fly to America who had any nursing or healthcare experience. Do you know that? Because I hope you know that because it's true, right? So that under the same president said, we don't want them, our country's full, right? Our embassies were directed to bribe anyone away from their country where they were taking care of their own people to come here and take care of our people. And in Germany today, who would have thought in the 1990s that in the year 2021, Germany would have one million Africans, five or six million Turks, a couple of million Arabs, three or 400,000 Chinese people, countless Slavic and you know, Russian peoples, and on and on. And that's welcome to Germany, the country that just elected a left-ish coalition and threw out the far-right parties. And Japan, there have never been 3 million non-Japanese people living in the islands of Japan, obviously. That is true today, 3 million. Now, it's a drop in the bucket, but surveys of Japanese people that have been done quite regularly and recently show that the Japanese, as much as it's alien to them, literally, they are more or less okay with it, is what they seem to be saying. You know, it's weird, but it's a novelty, but it's kind of necessary. We get it. We need it. And all of the efforts around promoting fertility have failed. And the countries that are doing migration right are the countries with fast growing economies or at least with robust labor markets where full time jobs are being created that are desirable destinations like Canada and Germany. So the reality of the situation does betray the notion that we are locked into a hostile intergenerational my land. This is my land not your land kind of dynamic, mm -hmm. which is good news. And even in democratic, liberal, open societies. 
As you point out, the you know basically all four scenarios are here. They're just not evenly distributed yet, <laughs> as the saying goes. And in some ways, we're kind of racing them against each other. But it doesn't seem like it's really an even playing field for how that how victories might be judged and how right. failures might be judged, right? Yeah. So I think the the really interesting question, and we talked about this a little bit before, is this strong cities hypothesis, which I think the cities are going to be the ones that I think will judge kind of be judged as the winners and the losers. Right. And that's going to be the way that some of these millennials and yep. younger move. Do you think that's potentially sure. a, good, a good force and how that might work? I think there's two important points here. One is that neo-medievalism, one of the scenarios, again, is in any case, irrespective of climate change, one of the emergent trends because of just the broader devolution of authority that's underway. What's happened over time is that, you know, how did central governments become the ruling forces that they are through information asymmetries and power asymmetries. And today you've eliminated information asymmetries. In fact, you have this fiscal federalism and devolution where provinces and cities are saying, wait a minute, I know exactly what happens to every dollar that I collect or that is spent here and I wanna keep it. And I don't wanna send it to Washington or to whatever the case may be. So you have this fiscal and political federalism that's become a trend around the world. Within that, it's cities, of course, that are the winners historically. For 7,000 years, cities have been the winners. We've been urbanizing, right? Never before have such, has such a large percentage of the human population lived in cities. So the city will always win, and the question is which cities? So when I point to Canada, or I point to Russia, or I point to Japan, in Japan, it's Fukuoka, right? Because their urban policies attract young people into the tech startups, and that's where you go when you want to see the youthful vibe. And there are going to be parts of Eastern Russia where you're going to have the young Indians and Chinese and Koreans and Vietnamese working as farmers and on infrastructure projects and building the future industrial archipelago of this thriving agricultural and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of trade region of Siberia, right? So places that no one here has necessarily heard of, but I actually profile them in the book and I think they're very livable. They're lovely places actually. And then it's going to be Scandinavian towns. It's going to be, you know, Calgary or, uh, you know, uh, Churchill, Canada, these kinds of places that I call it actually the new Hanseatic League, which is within the new Middle Ages. You know, uh, if you love medieval history the way I do, you know, the Hanseatic League, the Alliance of Trading Nations of the North Sea, trading states, city-states. And I imagine a kind of archipelago of these cities that say, you know, I don't know what government's in charge over there, that far off capital right now, but I know what's good for my business. I know how to attract talent. I know what trade corridors I want for shipping and for energy and for talent flows and place-based visas and airline routes, and I'm gonna do them. And I can definitely name you the 10, 20 cities that are smart enough to do that right now. You know, and you look at Scotland for, for an example of that, you know, Iceland, again, you know, cities in Canada and so forth. So there are enough places doing the right things today. Again, the future is here not evenly distributed, but the, the, the North Stars, if you will, are very, very present today. This is not science fiction. Right. But what was interesting was, and it, the way you described the, uh, the talk, it was always kind of talking from a Western perspective of uh, the attraction, essentially, of open societies and, and democracies, despite all our kind of dysfunction right now. But, but you rarely mentioned China, and I would just love you to overlay <laughs> China into this story, because... How do they fit in this in terms of an attractor, in terms of a migrating a billion point four people? I mean, you, you had very little to say on that. And so many people are obsessed with the kind of the, the colossus of, of right. China in the, in, the, in the future here. And, and yeah. I'd love you to kind of hear what is what is where, how do you see them going? It's a great question. So a couple of things. First is that, you know, China also just had a census. By the way, our recent census revealed that. America became more Latino, more diverse, more mixed race, right under Trump's nose, you know, FYI. China's census gave us a different data point, which is beyond fascinating. We, had, we have overestimated China's population. They overestimated their own population by guess how much? Anyone want to take a guess? How much were they off by? 50%. We give me a number. 1.4 billion people, right? You're very close. Yeah. Did you see that in the news? You're, you're cheating. Okay. 120 million people. 
All along, we thought that China has 120 million more people than it actually has. Now, it still has a lot of people, right? But, but what's so interesting is, of course, the, the demographic structure, right? It's the, it's the 4 to one pyramid, right? One child caring for two parents and four grandparents. And that's the dilemma that they're in right now. And now they've said, okay, definitely the one-child policy is over. Please have two children. Actually, please have three children. Not happening. Not will never happen. It's not happening in any country, even, you know, France and Sweden with all the benefits, barely making a dent in their fertility. And so what if they did? They're tiny, tiny countries anyway. So we're not going to replenish the world population on the back of China's attempt at a three child uh, policy and Chinese don't want to do it either. I don't want to essentialize, but, you know, I mean, East Asia, like elsewhere, has become quite materialistic. You know, young people are more concerned with their economic livelihoods and they're very concerned about just paying the rent, right? Not, uh, you know, serving the national mission to procreate and have more children, right? And this is, this is a big political issue already in China right now. So they're going to go through a pretty steep population decline. There's no doubt about it. But they'll still be very, very large. Because one thing you have to remember, because we very often talk about aging societies. China is getting old before it grows rich and so forth. China is rich, first of all. It's phenomenally rich. It has more than enough money to dole out pension payments if it wants to, and to do mobile healthcare and telemedicine if it wants to. It's doing all that stuff. So don't worry about the aging Chinese. Remember this that the definition of the word median is that half the population falls below that age. China still has 700 million young people. So it has enough money and means and tools and resources to care for its elderly, who in any case, of course, will experience gradual mortality. But it has 700 million young industrious people too. It has more young people than all of Europe has people. So we should not be writing China off as if it's all aging and dying overnight. Not at all, right? That's that's a really important thing. And Chinese people want to stay in China, which is also part of your question. Now, we China today has the largest diaspora in the world, 50 million people, mostly concentrated in Asia, mostly in Southeast Asia, of course. One of the things I didn't get to talk about, but is is actually forms a pretty you know big section of the book, is looking at other Asian populations and their diasporas. Because the median age in China is way higher than the median age in the rest of Asia, right? China's median age is like approximate, is like out getting more towards our median age. Whereas if you look at India and Southeast Asia, the median age is like 30, 31. So the vast majority of the world's young people are non-Chinese Asians, but also including Chinese Asians, right? In fact, I would go so far as to say that Kind of in a way, the future of humanity is two words, Asian youth. And where Asian youth go more or less determines the winners and the losers, in which cities and countries are the winners. Because if you're not attracting young, industrious Asians who are going to build your infrastructure and pay taxes, take care of the old people like Filipino nurses, well, your country is going to fall apart and no one's going to collect the trash or anything. So what I foresee is a lot more Asians because of climate change again. So Asians are young and dynamic and industrious, but oops, they're in climate stressed areas. So what I'm forecasting is that the South Asian diasporas, particularly the Indian diaspora, but if you take all of South Asia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, that's like 1.8 billion people. So the diaspora of the brown, <laughs> you, you know it very well here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, uh, will in, in by, by the numbers become much larger than the Chinese diaspora. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that one of the biggest demographic stories of the next 20 years that I don't know why no one's written about is that the Indian diaspora, the South Asian diaspora, will be way bigger than the Chinese diaspora in the next 20 years, like millions bigger. And in areas like Western Europe in particular, and of course, North America, you will have South Asian populations significantly outnumber Chinese populations. Already today, actually, it's not even a prediction. In the OECD world, in OECD countries, Indian professionals, so looking only strictly, this is OEC data about professional workforce, right? Indi there's already more than 1 million more Indians in the workforce than Chinese. And while Chinese are going home, Indians are, get me out of here. Uh, look at my family story. And that'll continue to be the case. And so the Indians are, yeah. are English speaking. Which so it's helps. so many factors. So mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, first of all, English speaking, post-colonial society, studying math, IT, healthcare, exactly the stuff we need where our labor shortages are. And, and I'm going to be candid about this, not Chinese, because we have a geopolitical problem here. The fact is that, and I'm, you know, it's not my opinion, 
It's not because of, I said so that the FBI is going and investigating every Chinese person who studies physics in this country. Right? I wouldn't want that, but that's what's happening. That doesn't happen to Indians. And look at the geopolitical alignments. So that's just a fact that the geopolitics plays a significant role. The geopolitics trickles in the identity politics, trickles into the immigration policy and the domestic kind of environment. Mm. So Indians can go everywhere today. And I have a chapter of the book about witnessing this in Germany. I, I happen to have gone to high school in Germany for, for part of my time for, uh, as an exchange student. And believe me, there were no other ethnic Indian people within a very significant radius. <laughs> Today, you go to Germany, there's Indians everywhere, and there's Indian restaurant every block. And the same goes for Vietnamese and every other Asian ethnic group. So you're seeing it in a very short amount of time. Yeah, uh, so my question is about kind of the cost of infrastructure and how that compares. Like, so far, I think we've seen a lot of migration that's economic, like, mm -hmm. Indians moving to the Middle East, it's not exactly like a great climate choice, right. right? It's economic. And if we're thinking about climate migration to like Siberia, like Canada, Russia, it, it seems to me that the infrastructure cost of building new infrastructure f is a lot more than it would be to just build, I guess, desalination, you know, dikes, you know, reflective paint, better air conditioning, yeah. where they've already had that infrastructure built for like a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and where they already live, and where they may also have a preference of living if the economic conditions uh, allow it. So we should do all of those things, but just because you may do high albedo surfacing, you know, in a city in India, it doesn't prevent you from having a zero-day water event. In the last couple of years, Sao Paulo, Dakar, Senegal, Cape Town, South Africa, Chennai, India, all had zero-day water events. So what do you mean by oh, zero? Oh, so day? they ran out of water. Like literally, like, you know, in Chennai, India, they had to redirect the trains to carry water tanks. Georgia had some of this even. Yeah. So, you know, there, so you can't reflect sunlight your way out of your disappearing water table, right? People have to move. And, and, and one of the interesting things is that the largest movement of people, again, during the pandemic was South Asians going home from the Gulf countries, right, to India and Pakistan. But that doesn't mean that either A, they'll never go back to build those air-conditioned cities that the Gulf countries want to build because they don't see themselves leaving and they can afford to build their way out of it. And if they want to live in domes forever, so be it. But the, the sort of poor, you know, employment, the labor migrants, the construction workers and the farmers from India will could go to new destinations that are now the, becoming the breadbaskets of the world, specifically Russia and Kazakhstan. So we were on holiday. My parents are here, by the way. Um, so we were on holiday in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan a couple of summers ago. Because those are like my favorite countries in the world. So I've been like 20 times. So we're, I, I could not believe 20 years I've been going to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I've never seen so many Indians like everywhere we went. The hotel cook, the tour guides, you've got dentists, school teachers. Every time an international school opens up in a random country, because expats and migrants have come in and they're becoming a more modern society, they want to have schools that teach in English, where do they get their English teachers from? So for a million zillion reasons, you just have this growing, so they'll find new places to go. And Russia is actively trying to, is recruiting Indian farmers. They actually tried for a while to get South African farmers, and now they're getting Indian farmers and, and so forth. So, you know, people find a way into these places. So yeah. Well, it can be a climate push. It can be a political push. There can be a push and pull operating at exactly the same time. Stuart, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, before you wrap up, Xander, I want to say two things about Parag's books. One is, if you look at the back cover of Move, you'll see a blurb by me. I'm enthusiastic <laughs> about uh, this book and about Parag. And also, and especially an earlier book he did called Connectography. It is the best book about global infrastructure by miles. Demographics are destiny. I think you're right that, that infrastructure is the real life of uh, the global civilization that we're finding ourselves increasingly aware that we're in the thick of. It's infrastructure in all its forms. And it, it is, he's got a lot of ground truth because he's traveled to these places. He's got the statistics mastered. The kinds of maps you see here that show where things are and what goes through them and what the traffic is, is all in there in, in great detail. And I'm sort of in love with infrastructure anyway, <laughs> and this is the world of it. <laughs> Thank you.
So I want to thank you so much thank you, uh, for this talk. This is fantastic. And for thank you. Parag's vision focuses on the coming future of civilization's migration. But for millions, forced migration is already a pressing and lived reality. Back in February of 2016, Long now hosted a panel discussion with several perspectives on the Syrian refugee crisis. The guests included speakers who gave their personal accounts of being a refugee and walking with them. Here's a portion of their talks where they give a first-hand account of their migration experience. My name is Sara, I'm from Italy. So I would like to actually bring in a more personal perspective to all of this, because yeah. it's great to think about the foundation and the, the bigger problem, but in the end of the day, it's a lot of politics, so it's really escape our, our, our action, but I want to bring the perspective as a friend. I lived in Syria in 2009. What I did is I followed the refugees from Greece to Germany in October. I followed the family with four children. It's either walking with them or like doing anything to... And so for just to be very sure what I understood through going through a trip from Greece to Germany by foot, just imagine you are very hungry, you're very tired, you're very cold. And there is no solution. Like until you get to Germany, you don't know what's going to happen with you because the police might, might take you and... Okay, so now I'm Italian, so at any point I can show my passport and say I'm Italian, so please let me go. But for refugees, they... You know, it's a question of luck. So I think really connecting on this individual level, it would be very important because we are here talking. But when you actually go there and just walk with them, because with an American passport, you can do it. Nothing's going to happen to you. You can actually help them. You can speak to them and understand who they are and where they're from. And the other thing is in Italian, it is true that it's difficult for us to accept refugees. Mostly because we are not an immigration country. Like we immigrated to the US mostly, but we never had refugees before, so it's a new thing. But it's not because we are particularly racist, it's more out of ignorance that you don't really know who they are. So I think uh, hopefully it's gonna change in the future and I hope Europe will open up. But I agree with all of, of you that we can take them and uh, the young people, we are very open-minded and we will try to First of all, um, my name is Rahman Osman. I'm Kurdish from Syria. I've been here in the U.S. for three years and a half. I applied for asylum in the U.S. and still waiting for the decision. But I could have the opportunity to, to work here and I have uh, my life. So I think uh, comparing to my people all over the world, I am, I am very lucky. So, because I know uh, many of my friends, even my family, they scattered all over the world and they are suffering a lot, uh, even in the neighboring countries. Uh, so some uh, maybe may think that maybe they will be more comfortable in the neighboring country because they, they know this, the language or uh, from very close cultural aspects, but no at all. Even two members of my family, they live in Iraqi Kurdistan now because I'm Kurdish. But at the same time, even Iraqi Kurdistan, they have a lot of problems there right now. We used to have a lot of refugees in Syria. Uh, me, myself, I was training English back home in, uh, in Damascus for Iraqi refugees and some uh, Palestinian refugees. I worked with the European Institute uh, there called IECD. We had Palestinian, Iraqi, Somalian, but I never thought that we, Syria, will be refugees in other countries. My passion is music. I've been playing this instrument called Saz, which is a Kurdish uh, instrument. Uh, we call it tambour or Saz. It's developed from uh, the original tambour, which is 5,000 years old. So I've been playing this instrument for 30 years now. I never studied music and never studied this instrument. I just started playing it at home when I was like 10 years old. So I started composing uh, since I was 15 years old and I played in many venues in Damascus and even here uh, or in Syria and in the United States. So I will participate here now with uh, some music maybe, which is the language of the world. It's a universal language and something of my composition uh, and I hope you will enjoy it.
This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talks you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07-003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. The music you're hearing right now was composed and performed by Raman Osman. It's a composition for the Saz, about his feelings on his home and the Syrian refugee crisis. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.